So you're the High Commissioner to Sierra Leone, but what does that mean? Well, basically, I am the representative of the UK government in Sierra Leone. So the High Commissioner is it's a, a, a title given to an ambassador, but somebody who works in a Commonwealth country. So all of our heads of mission who work in Commonwealth countries are called High Commissioners. But my job is pretty simple. I represent all of UK interests in Sierra Leone in the bilateral relationship, whether they're political, development, security, trade or prosperity. And consular, of course, looking after British nationals. And my job is to run the platform. Uh, we've got a, a quite a large platform here with over 200 staff uh, and to make sure that we're all working to the same sort of set of objectives and ultimately pursuing and protecting British interests in this part of the world. So it sounds quite political and I, I'm thinking what's the difference between you and a politician? It's a, it's a really good, really good question, Chris, and lots of people ask that. I mean, the, the, the most important and first thing to say on this is I am not a politician. I'm a, I'm a civil servant. I'm a public servant. I'm paid for by the taxpayer. I'm a taxpayer. Uh, you and many colleagues listening to this pay taxes in one way, shape or form. So my job is, as I said, to represent British interests and work for the government of the day. So I work to ministers and with ministers. And my job is, has two sort of basic elements. One, as I said, the first answer is to represent and promote our interests here with Sierra Leonean, uh, the Sierra Leonean government and all of our partners working in the country. The second part of my role is back into the UK to give advice to ministers, whether it's the Foreign Secretary, the Prime Minister, the Minister for Africa, the International Development Secretary, whoever, and explain to them how our work is having an impact and how it's achieving uh, the British government's aspirations for our work in Africa. So as a civil servant, my job is to give advice to ministers and work for ministers. It sounds like quite, it could be quite stressful at times. Um, and I guess one of the things we sort of need when we're, when we're stressed is our family and friends. So how, how do you find working and living so far away from your family and friends? Well, I think like any job, uh, it can be stressful. There's different types of stress, whether you're involved in public facing work or dealing with staff or dealing with crises or security incidents. And, and, and I've had a share of those in my career in the 20 odd years I've been working in the foreign office at home and overseas. Um, we, we, we actually, uh, my, my family, as you, you probably recall, do live back in the UK. We live in County Durham and Darlington. Uh, they're not here with me during this posting because I have two teenage sons who have remained for schooling purposes back in the UK. So I travel back and forth quite a lot. And yes, that's quite tough. It's quite demanding. I try and get back every six or seven weeks to see them. Uh, frankly, I think it's much, much harder on my, my sort of amazing wife and two sons. I think, you know, the fact that I'm not around at home every day helping out and putting my weight as a dad and a father is, is, is a real challenge for them. Uh, and I'm lucky here that I can just get my head down and focus on the work. But we do have families here. We have lots of staff here with their families, with children, with partners, spouses and relations. And, and that helps, I think, you know, deal with the challenges of living away from sort of home and what you're used to in the UK. But that's part of our career, right? We signed up to this when we joined the job, whether we joined uh, the Foreign Office or DFID or the MOD or other things, we knew that we'd be taken overseas. I've been very lucky in my career for most of my postings to be accompanied by my wife and subsequently my children. So they've had some great adventures. We've had some fantastic adventures as a family. This is just one of those periods where, where we're not together all the time, but you know, hopefully in the future that will change. 
as a high commissioner, I assume you're talking a lot of important meetings in front of important people and in front of big crowds as well. How do you have the confidence to do that? The really good question. Um, I, I I think there's a lot of bluff involved in our sort of profession. You know, you've got to be able to sort of. Uh, be able to convince people that you look confident and convince people that you know what you're talking about, where, if I be frank with you, that isn't always the case. Uh, and I would say a, a sort of couple of things on this. If you're not nervous at standing up with a group of people, whether it's two people, ten people, a hundred people, a thousand people, then frankly there's something not quite right because you should be a little nervous because you should be thinking all of the time, what do I want to achieve from this meeting? What are the messages I want to get across? And what are the messages I want to get back? You know, what, what is the objective? Why am I doing this? What am I looking to achieve? So to do that, you've got to be mentally sharp. You've got to be emotionally sharp, not just in terms of what you're saying, but also listening and hearing what people are telling you back. And that includes speaking to crowds or large audiences in formal meetings or to staff or to colleagues one-to-one. -one. A core part of what we do overseas as diplomats is going out and meeting people. In essence, it's the bread and butter of what we do day to day. It's going out, building relationships, getting to know people well, getting to know what motivates them, what drives them, what their backgrounds are, and understanding why they're behaving in certain ways so that we can then work with them to achieve you know, a mutual set of objectives and aims and aspirations. So you build a little bit of confidence in your career. Um, I think it helps a little bit if you're not necessarily shy, although, you know, actually, you know, as a kid growing up in, in Hull and going to state school and, and sort of battling my way through sixth form and finding a place in university, I wasn't very confident. I was very shy. I was a very shy teenager. And I've learned through my career as a diplomat and formerly as a police officer, I've just learned a number of coping mechanisms to sort of exude a bit of confidence in public, you know, be really clear about what I'm trying to say, refine my presentation. And just remember that core trick in all of this is just to be human. People don't want to speak or listen to robots. They respond to real human beings with real stories, with real accents. And I think remembering who you are, remembering your background is a really important part of that. It sounds like a big, a big part of your job then is like sort of relationships and building relationships with people. I guess like if you looked at the definition of diplomacy, and I should maybe I should have looked at the definition of diplomacy before this, but it probably it's probably something quite close to that as well, building relationships and stuff like that. Um, but talking about university, what did you study at university, and does it still help you today? I, well, I, I, I did a um, history and politics uh, bachelor's and then a master's at Aberdeen University back in the early 90s. Um, I'd been very, I'll be honest with you, I was very lucky to get into university. I did not get good or level grades at all for a variety of reasons. I was not a great student in my mid-teens. Um, I was a bit of a terror away at school. I was rescued by a, a very, very a, a very brilliant sixth form teacher in, in Market Wheaton where I went to sixth form and sort of for whatever reason, saw a little bit of potential in me and backed me and, and through lots of hard work and pain and kicking, got me to study properly for my A-levels. And I managed to win a bursary to Aberdeen, which was a sort of life-changing event. Uh, and this was back in the day, you know, we were so fortunate back then, you know, like, you know, you guys today are struggling to cover your costs and the hardships that many students face. You know, we got grants and I won a bursary. So, I, I, you know, I want to be really clear, I was exceptionally fortunate. 
Um, I worked hard, but I was very lucky. Uh, and I got to Aberdeen, loved it, did history and politics, which was a great degree, very challenging intellectually. Um, and so what did that do for me? I mean, I think it, it, I always remember my first careers conversation at university when I sat down in my third year at one of these careers fairs and my tutor said to me, so you're doing history and politics, you're either going to be a teacher or a librarian. And that wasn't the most, with the greatest respect to teachers, my wife's a teacher, I think it's an awesome profession. Um, you know, I, I remember feeling quite demotivated coming out of that and not being clear what I wanted to do. And um, for a variety of reasons, which I won't bore you with, I ended up joining the police in Edinburgh in the mid nineties. Um, and I did that because I wanted a bit of adventure and to see a bit of the world and learn a bit about humanity. Um, did my degree help me? Yes, it did. Of course it did. It helped me sort of analyze issues. It allowed me to sort of think a little deeper and dig beneath things and try and understand a bit more. And it made me appreciate that to understand where we are today, the first thing you need to do, to do is understand the past. You know, you really need to understand history. It's particularly true around politics. It's particularly true about understanding how economies and societies work. And if you have a little sense of what's gone before, it really allows you to put the present into context. And that applies to policing, diplomacy, and most professions. So long-winded way of saying I've always found my degree really useful and fallen back on it quite a lot. I think one of the reasons that I reached out to you maybe about a year ago or so um, about getting involved with role models was the fact that we've both, we've both lived on the same estate, the Quadrant, um, in Hull. Uh, and, you know, we're not necessarily from the backgrounds where you'd go to university or go to, uh, obviously go on to a career like yours. Um, why do you think it is that so many people like us who are from them, more low socioeconomic backgrounds, don't go on to the top jobs? Wow. I mean, I, Chris, it's a really good question. And uh, I'm chuckling there as you bring back happy memories of the Quadrant uh, in North Hull, uh, which for those people listening in, in the, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, was not a stealth and live by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, had its benefits, like all places in terms of community and learning certain things about real life. Why don't people, uh, why don't more people from our backgrounds end up in top jobs? Well, I think there's a number of answers to that. It's quite a complicated issue. I think firstly, actually, I'm going to turn that around. What's a top job? You know, I think, you know, people look at certain professions and think they're, they're brilliant, you know, whether you want to be a, a leading doctor or a leading barrister or a lawyer or work in politics or be a CEO of a large firm. You know, these are all great careers. I'm not diminishing them in any way, shape or form. But there are many other ways to earn a living and have a satisfying career. Uh, and a lot of my friends, for example, I went to school within Hull from North Hull from the Quadrant, Left school at 16 with very few qualifications, did YTS. For those of us that are old enough to remember the YTS and BTECs, which are in the news this week, as you know, went and learned, they went and learned trades. They got skills. They were brickies. They were joiners, electricians, plumbers. And many of them have gone on and have worked non-stop since 16, 17, and worked very well, built their own companies, met their aspirations, had families, had kids, and have very comfortable and successful lives. So there are different measures of success is my first answer. But your point I know is, um, you know, some of these professions just seem sort of pigeonholed for people from certain backgrounds, whether they're middle class, privately educated, red Britain universities, Russell Group, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, I think that's true uh, to a large degree. I think certainly up until very recently, those types of careers tended to attract a certain type of person. Uh, who felt they could move more comfortably in those circles, whether it's because of their background, their qualifications, their family history. 
their aspirations to achieve and get a public profile or a, a Whitehall profile. But I do think it's changing. And I think, you know, I'm not saying I as an individual have been a part of that movement. I think I'm part of an increasing number of people that have joined the civil service and the diplomatic service, for example, that come from state school backgrounds, from families of lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And a lot of it is around, you know, believing in yourself. A lot of it is believing that you have an innate set of skills, whether it's people skills, whether it's the ability to learn, whether it's actually, and this is really important, the ability to work really hard and look to continually improve yourself. And, you know, an ability to listen and empathize with people. And in my profession in particular, that is a very underrated skill. You know, empathy, self-awareness, realizing that you don't know the answers to everything. Nobody is, you know, nobody has the answers to all the challenges we face in a particular career or a particular posting. And realizing that actually a key skill uh, of leadership, a key skill of leading missions, a key skill of being good at your job is about attracting a good team and a good set of colleagues around you. And that involves having self-awareness. It involves understanding how people tick and what their emotional drivers are. And I don't care what university or what institution or what private school you went to. Those are things that you can learn in many different ways. I like your first point there, you know, what is a top job? Because I feel one thing I always think is, you know, you get all these big offices where these sort of what we call top professionals work at, but then offices wouldn't exist if you didn't have your electricians and your builders and your a lot of different trades that we, we need to keep going. So I guess in, in many ways, they're the most important jobs. Um, and the, the other sort of point as well, that you know, empathy is such an important thing. And I feel like with, with empathy, you, you naturally get that when you do come from a sort of lower socioeconomic or diverse background because you, you see a lot more of the world. Like, like you said, you've seen a lot of the world coming from the quadrant and it makes you understand people more. Um, I think, you know, I'll be really honest with you. Of course, you need to have to, to get into the civil service, to get into public service. Uh, there is clearly a requirement for some qualifications. You know, people need to show that they can learn, they can do exams, they can operate under pressure, and then they have some core skills: reading, writing, analytical skills. So, you know, your your basic GCSEs and A levels. Of course, it's a good thing. It's always a good thing if you can to achieve a good set of grades in English, maths, and other subjects. It isn't necessarily critical but there, there will tend to be in most government departments in particular a minimum requirement of qualifications mainly around a number of GCSEs at A level and beyond. So you know let's not hide away from that but then you get into the degree space uh, or the, the sort of HND space, BTEC space, other qualifications and we are there's a big push in Whitehall at the moment actually and this is quite interesting because it is quite political if i'm honest with you you know i'm a civil servant so i'm going to frame this rather carefully but the current government actually has a very aggressive agenda on what they call the leveling up because you know there's a real sense that Whitehall has been too london centric has been too you know attracting too many candidates from the southeast and the middle class and so on and so forth and actually, interestingly, given his own brown and history, this particular prime minister is very passionate about that. He's very passionate about getting more people in from the regions. He's exceptionally passionate about social mobility uh, and recruiting more staff into the civil service and the state sector. So there is a real drive to sort of look and challenge existing criteria for getting into the civil service. All of that said, these things take time. So what you do need is a basic set of qualifications. But I think, you know, in terms of skills, increasingly and I think really positively uh, the civil service is looking to recruit people who are a little bit older who've maybe done different things with their lives 
I joined the civil service, didn't join the civil service until I was 30. I'd done seven or eight years as a police officer. Uh, back then in the sort of late 90s, early noughties, I was quite new. But now we're seeing more people like me who've done other things, whether they've been teachers, uh, worked in the law or PR, or just gone for travel and worked in bars and done you know, day jobs. People who've got different experiences, and it's back to the, the previous answers, there is a real driver, and it's especially true in diplomacy and development. We want people who've got a different set of skills, who have a broader outlook on life. And actually, that is becoming more important because, you know, as the world is changing at such pace with technology, as we've shown with COVID, how, you know, the sort of ability to work remotely and in offices is going to be completely transformed. Uh, you know, post-Brexit, our role in the world has been redefined almost on a monthly basis. Um, we, the core thing that this particular government, but I think the civil service at large, are really focused on is making us, as an institution, much more representative of the UK and the country we serve. That means it's been infinitely more diverse, whether it's in, whether it's in terms of race, creed or colour, religious affiliation, socioeconomic background, disability, gender, etc., etc., the civil service is more diverse than it was when I joined it 20 years ago. But we are still in nowhere near as diverse enough to represent the whole of the UK in terms of all of those issues and our regional backdrop. So those are the things I would encourage anybody listening to this to really think about. We want more people from different parts of Britain. We want more people with different backgrounds. And we want more and more diverse workforce. And so that is a really positive thing, I think. Yeah, I think that answers one of the sort of, you know, I'm, maybe I can be a bit more political because I'm not a civil servant, but answer is one of the, the, the sort of things where you, you get this us and them approach from your, your average person to the government and especially people from sort of low socioeconomic backgrounds. And if we get more people working for the government in civil service, you know, and politicians as well, um, who are from that background, it's, it's, it's going to dissolve that, I guess. But also... You know, you bring in, like you've said earlier, the range of skills that you bring from a council estate is totally different to a range of skills that you'll bring from Eton or a private school. So I guess them, we still need the people from Eton private school because they have got them different skills as well, but then skills match together makes for the sort of perfect, the perfect combination. So if, you, if you've got a civil service that has all of that, it's, uh, it's definitely probably, probably for the best. Um, you make a really important point there as well, Chris. And I think I, 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 this is something I stress a lot to, to people I work with. We, we cannot be in a space of sidelining colleagues, friends uh, and workmates who come from different backgrounds. The whole point of diversity is we celebrate everybody's differences, right? It's a critical point. Some, some of our friends and colleagues will have the good fortune to be able to access private education and go to Russell Goodman universities. And frankly, brilliant, good luck to them. Um, many of them work really bloody hard to get that opportunity. Many of their parents work really, really hard. You know, we all, those of us that have families, I, I'm, I'm a father, you know, I want the best for my children and I'll work nice and day to achieve that. We should not diminish aspiration and opportunity. This conversation and the broader conversation about social diversity is about making sure that everybody gets a chance whether they're from a privately educated background or a state educated background etc etc whether they lived like you and i did on the quadrant or whether they were brought up in Surbiton. you know everybody deserves an equal shot it's not about diminishing one group against the other and that's a really really important part um so 
You've sort of already answered this, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you think young people have to go to university to be a success? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, right? And it's something that everybody asks. We all ask it when we're young, we ask our parents, ask it. Short answer is no. I don't think people need to go to university to be a success. You know, I think we, we, there are more people now than ever before go to college or university or higher education. And that is a fantastic thing. Uh, you know, it goes back to the 70s and 80s, um, you know, without again getting into politics, but that, that, that opening up of the higher edu further education space is one of the best things that's happened to our country, not just because it's increased opportunity in the skills of the workforce, but frankly, it's made the UK a world leader in education provision, which is why we attract so many students from across the world. And we, that, we should pause there and celebrate that, right? But it doesn't mean that you need to go to university because frankly, not everybody's suited to it. And we talked a little bit earlier on in the conversation about you know, some of the peers you and I have grown up with who were never in a million years going to go to sixth form, never mind university. One, because they didn't want to, two, because they didn't suit their makeup, or their, whether it's their intellectual ability or practical ability or just their family circumstances. It just wasn't going to work for them. And the whole point um, of you know, growing an economy and sustaining economic growth and development is that you have a varied workforce with a whole variety of skills and, and practical or intellectual otherwise. So the long-winded way of saying there are loads of different ways to be a success in your life. And I talked about some of the friends I grew up with on the quadrant and elsewhere who left school at 16 with no levels, no CSEs, did, got their practical skills and have had really good successful careers. A good friend of, of mine at home in Market Wheaton, I won't name his name, left school at 16. He had, he had five or six O levels, but he went to become an apprentice at British Aerospace out at Brough. You know, and that he's retired. He's now retired at 48 after 32 years with British Aerospace. Had a very good pension, a very comfortable life, and is now spending, you know, his 50s doing odd jobs, doing a bit of consultancy and traveling around the world. Um, you know, there's loads of different ways to make a success of your career. You know, I, of course, going to university has oodles of positives about it, not just in terms of the qualifications and the academic rigor, but frankly, in terms of the life experience, meeting different people. You know, getting out on the beers, going and meeting different folk from different backgrounds, doing stuff that you're doing, this fantastic work with role models, stretching yourself. You know, I would never in a million years put anybody off going to university in the best years of my life, absolutely. But it does. it is not mission critical for you making a success of your life. It's one point that you made there as well, you know, your friend, he'd, done, he'd got five O levels, which I guess is a equivalent to GCSEs these days. Um, and... It wasn't a necessarily underqualified person to go on to go to university, but he decided to go to uh, to go to go and do something different. And the, the point there is, you don't have to be, you know, you're not stupid if you don't go to university, or you don't have to be if you're smart enough to go to university. It doesn't mean you have to do it either. And there's just different different routes for different people. And it's not always judged on how clever or how um, academic you are. It's just on what suits you as a person. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely, you've, you've, that is a really, really critical thing. And I, please keep that in the podcast. It's really, you've, you've nailed it, Chris. I, I would add one thing to this because I'm conscious we need to finish up in a minute. It is really interesting nowadays with large organizations, it, it, their recruiting practices are starting to shift a bit. Um, and I include the civil service, but I, I, I think where I live in Darlington, there's a very, there's a couple of big engineering firms and stuff. And I've got friends who work there, whether they're board level or otherwise, but what is happening now increasingly is employers are not looking necessarily to graduates to fill their places. They're looking increasingly to school leavers. And I know of some companies who are consciously making a decision with their new recruits to split between graduates 
um, people leaving sixth form and people leaving at 16. And because they're wanting a broader brush of people with different skills and different sort of emotional intelligence and sort of practical skills to bolster their workforce. And they're giving them all equal opportunities to be promoted and work their way up. And that is happening more and more at board level. And I think, you know, not that I'm an industry expert by any stretch of imagination, but I do see that happening more and more in different sectors where they are diversifying their recruitment. So, you know, it's one to watch for the next few years. I've got two more two more questions to finish on that. I think this is two, two sort of, as a young person, these are the things that I, I, I'd like to know as well. Um, what's your biggest advice to young people? <laughs> oh God, this is, you know, when you grow up, you say, I don't never want to be like my dad. I know I'm going to be like my dad, right? Um, it's interesting. Listen, really good question. Biggest advice to young people? I guess, I guess two or three things. One, enjoy what you're doing now. You know, I'm not saying necessarily always live for the moment, but where you are right now, whether you're at college, university, whether you've started your career, whatever you're doing, just enjoy yourself soak it all up make the most of the experiences you have to study to travel to do work experience to meet people because those are the building blocks that will see you so see you through so much in the next 10 to 20 years as you get more serious about life and getting your career you know whether you want to start families or travel overseas soak it up listen learn and just make the most of it make the most of the fun times Secondly, uh, and it's, this it sounds a little bit counterintuitive to, against what I've just said, but it, the two are not mutually exclusive. Work, do your work, right? Nothing in life is for free. You know, things don't land on your lap. And it's especially true given the, the, the sort of organization stuff we're doing, role models. You know, there are times in your life where you've just got to get your head down and graft. And, you know, that whether it's your studies, whether it's your part-time work, earning money over the summer or the holidays, whether it's learning new skills and starting a new job, get your, get your head down and work. If you work hard and listen to people and learn and soak up experience, you generally will do pretty well in your life. Uh, and it sounds a little bit obvious, but you know, I'm still surprised how many people I meet drifting through their lives who are not prepared to put their, their shoulders to the door and start, you know, I need to really push this. And I think the third thing is, you know, the world today has changed even in the last decade, certainly the last 20, 30 years when I was growing up, uh, it is increasingly clear that we are we're moving into a sort of, we are in a century where national borders, where the old paradigms of state structures and barriers are shifting all the time. So my last, and this is a sort of a little bit to do with my career, obviously, but I think it is critical, is remember to look at things globally. You know, you think about issues about population growth, about the climate, about the you know the way that sort of the, the, the sort of IT sphere has completely transformed everybody's works way of interacting and working. Don't just look at your local news. Think about the world. Think about what China is doing. Think about how Russia behaves. Think about Africa. Think about the growth of population in America. Think about the climate. Have a global outlook because that is going to dictate how you live your life, how you work, and how your family lives for the next fifty to hundred years. I think that that's a good way to express your story as well. You know, started off as a paper boy in Hull. Um, I guess you never you never thought you'd end up in Sierra Leone, um, and maybe the you know the global world seems so far away from you, but it's actually like you say, the borders are are coming ever more like closer, um, especially with like. Like you say IT and um, you know, 
it's so easy to access things across the globe now. Um, but like I say, we've not mentioned it today, but you, you've been a paper boy, you started off as a paper boy, you went to uh, university, then you, you, know, you became a police officer, and now you're working in the FCO. Um, I suppose it's going to change names soon. Um, but you, <laughs> what, what's next for you? Yeah, I'll tell you what I'll do before I answer the question. I, one of my, when I was a student, I went for a job interview with um, Thomas Cook because I wanted to be a travel rep. I wanted to work in a holiday resort and help people get drunk and swim by the pool. And at that time, that was my aspiration. I wanted to go work. work. That, that was my thinking of what the living and working overseas was. Uh, I got through to the final stage and, uh, you know, I had to do lots of role plays and stuff like that. And they came back to me and said, no, you're not good enough for this. You'll never, you, you're far too serious. You don't, don't take, you don't laugh at yourself, which at the time was the right feedback to give. But I always remember that as a little incident growing up about what my perception was of the outside world. Um, so it goes back to my previous answer, set your bars high, set, don't, don't be shy of your aspirations and think globally and think big picture. What's next for me? You know what, it's a good question, Chris. You know, as you mentioned there, we're changing, we're merging with the DFID in the next few weeks to become the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Quite a big thing in Whitehall and sort of uh, organisational change. It'll be exciting, it'll be challenging. We're really going to try and merge our development work overseas with our policy work and bring together the programme and the delivery much more tightly. So it'll be, I think a lot of my time in the next year as a head of mission will be taking up sort of getting that internal plumbing sorted out and making sure that we're really not neglecting the sort of external uh, engagement work that we need to do in places like West Africa, which is really important. But uh, I'm due to finish here next summer in 2021. Uh, I would have done then sort of 20, 21 years in the Foreign Office and then in the FCDO. So I'm probably at a stage of my career where I need to think about sort of coming back to London and doing a job in Whitehall or wherever else we might be based. But I still um, have aspirations to go back overseas again. This is my second job as a head of mission, second time as an ambassador or high commissioner. So I'm probably sort of stuck in that space uh, where my, my bosses, my leaders will want me to come overseas again at some point and run a mission in another part of the world, which would be brilliant. I'm very fortunate and very lucky to have that chance. So I suspect in the next two to three years, I'll be looking at jobs overseas again, you know, running different missions in a different part of the world. Um, you know, although I look at you, fortunately your listeners will not see this on camera, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite old now. I'm, I'm 50 next year. It's a big anniversary for me. Quite nervous about that, but I still have another 10 or 15 years left in the office. So hopefully I'll get another couple of opportunities at least to sort of be an ambassador overseas and, you know, if I can get to 60, 63, 65 and end up having been an ambassador for the UK three or four times, uh, if you'd have asked me that as a paper boy in the quaddy back in the 80s, I'd have, I'd have laughed, laughed in your face. Uh, so I guess my message is anything is possible. Just back yourself, you know, build your confidence. You know, don't be shy of being who you are as a real person and put the hard work in and frankly, anything is possible. I think that's a nice message to end on, and your story says perfectly that anything is possible when you've uh, you've gone from from Hull to Sierra Leone, which is actually I guess Sierra Leone's twinned with Hull, isn't it? So it's quite a quite a journey. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll, thanks very much for for giving the time up. I know you're very busy, um, especially with the merger and everything. I imagine that adds extra pressure onto your workload as well. So thanks for giving the time to 
speak to us today and I think this story will inspire a lot of people. Chris, I hope it, I just hope it helps in some small way, right? But can I just say, and I hope you keep this in, what you are doing with role models is utterly fantastic. It's a real inspiration. Um, and I hope lots of people tune in, not just to me, but to the other speakers you've had. Uh, I want to be part of this and work with you. And, uh, you know, I live up the road in Darlington, so I ain't going anywhere. Um, whenever or however I can help you uh, and fellow members in any way, just give me a shout. I'm right there with you. And I just wish you all the best with your work, mate. It's utterly fantastic. Well done.